Hello, it's Monday, March the 29th. I'm Mike Duran on today's podcast. A ban on mephedrone is expected today. One dealer tells us he makes thousands a week selling the drug, but will stop only if it's made illegal. I don't like having to sell drugs to make money, but on a good week, you can make about eight to ten thousand pounds. Also in the podcast, top surgeons tell The Guardian that GPs are being told to turn away some patients to save money. Plus... I've cut back the amount of trade work I do because it's not on the bottle product. It's not worth it. There's no margin in it. It costs you more to deliver it than it does to actually sell it. One cider maker tells us how London-based MPs are killing off countryside industry. And... Down on the ground, you've got the grey-winged trumpeter... uh, They're a bit like a sort of chicken species and are commonly used in Peru as as a form of guard dog because of the, the noise they make when strangers approach. First, the Advisory Council for the Misuse of Drugs today publishes its ruling on so-called legal highs. It follows demands to outlaw the plant fertiliser mephedrone after it was linked to the death of several teenagers. There has been some criticism of the delay in classification amid fears that dealers are stockpiling the drug because they're expecting a ban. The Guardian tracked down a dealer. He will remain anonymous. He tells us why he sells it and starts by explaining exactly what the drug is. Mephedrone is a synthetic version of cathinone, which is the active ingredient of a plant called cat, which people chew in some countries um, instead of drinking alcohol. It's the, the leaves they chew and it's... Uh, similar effects to XC and speed. first heard about methadone at a festival last year when I first tried it and acknowledged its effects. I thought it was much better than any MDMA I'd ever taken and XC. I started selling it because there's not a lot of ways a kid like me can make a decent amount of money to fund life and, you know, the the things that I want to do and I don't like having to sell drugs to make money but that's the harsh reality that I, I can't get my hands on that sort of money any other way. On a good week you can make about eight to ten thousand pounds. As soon as they make methadone illegal there is a long queue of drugs which are potentials to replace methadone. If they do make it illegal I shall definitely stop selling it because I don't want to be selling illegal drugs. I, I'm not a bad person. Yes, yes, I sell drugs that might make people's lives worse. But it's um, not necessarily the drugs that are making their lives worse. It's a, it, it maybe acts as a catalyst. It seems to be the impurities that which are the cause of the bad side effects of methadone. A lot of the vasoconstricting effects which have been reported, I, I've, I've noticed, tend to come from bad quality methadone. The blame should be put on the companies who are making it because they are cutting corners and not putting in the time to recrystallise it. And gets all of the impurities out of it. But um, they are under no obligation to, so they don't. When you dabble with drugs, you are potentially risking your life. It's a very, very small risk. Just because it's 
illegal drug, as everyone should know by now, doesn't mean that it is safe. Next, a letter published in The Guardian today from six of the top surgical colleges says thousands of patients are being turned away simply to save money. Patients with less serious complaints, such as hernias and grommets, join others who won't be treated because of cost pressure. Surgeons say the government has acted without consulting the experts on a subject they don't know enough about. Our social affairs editor, Randeep Ramesh, tells us what's in the missive. The letter's from uh, six of the top uh, surgical colleges in England. And what surgeons have told The Guardian is that a range of common ailments are no longer being treated on in the NHS. Thousands of patients are turning up to their GPs with ailments such as uh, trapped nerves in their wrist, with, with some with hernias, some with grommets, that's ear glue for young kids, and are simply being turned away, not because the treatments don't exist, it's because the bar has been raised and health trusts are depriving people of these treatments in order to save money, say these surgeons. And what are the GPs being asked to tell their patients? They are being asked to say, you obviously have a condition, um, but it's no longer considered one that requires medical treatment, that instead it will go away with time. Sometimes that's quite right, but the surgeons say, well, the trouble is if you can't hear as a young child, if you go away for a year and you can't hear, that's not a very good idea for your development. There's a risk with things like varicose veins. Varicose veins can actually become severe problems if they're left untreated. Now, of course, there, there always has been a bar, you know, that, that patients don't turn up with sort of um, ear glue and, a, and a sort of the beginnings of a varicose vein and, and immediately treated. The surgeons realize that, but they said that what's happened is the, the time left for wait for treatment is now so long that effectively they're non-existent, you know, you, and they've not been consulted is their big problem, is no one has told them why medically there's been some big revolution that means all these ailments should no longer be serviced by the National Health Service. So is it the list of operations which the surgeons object to then, or just the, print, the whole principle? Well, they object to both, actually. I mean, first of all, the, the Department of Health says there is no list. Now, the surgeons say, well, actually, the Department of Health have commissioned, uh, or they suspect they've commissioned management consultants at McKinsey, who came out with a list last year saying, oh, you could save £700 million by simply dropping all these surgeries. Now, what's happened, of course, is the surgeon said, well, hang on a minute, how come out of the 150 healthcare trusts in England, all of these surgeries seems to have disappeared? And they put two or two together and said, well, this is to cut costs. That's their first problem. The second problem is, in principle, they object to not being consulted by the government on changes in the way that patients are delivered surgical procedures. They say, well, hang on, we're the the repository of knowledge here. Surely you should ask us whether the stuff's changed medically. So I think that's where their two bones contentions are. The the government's response is simply, well, we're not saving money. There is no centralised list. And anyway, science changes and um, we've got to move with with the science. If the surgeons were consulted, we are obviously in an economic downturn. You know, they have to be realistic, don't they? If they can come up with a list, will this problem go away? Well, they do say that frontline staff in the NHS are well aware of the fact that they need to be money saved. Their problem is that it's being all done without consultation and in secret. And that's what their issue is, is how come none of this is being discussed and without public debate? So the public 
are seeing various changes, seeing medical treatments disappear and not really realising it. Guardian Daily, news and reports from around the world. Now to a topic which has got the tweeters in a tizzy, beating all other topics in the immediate aftermath of the Chancellor's budget last week. Stamp duty and inheritance tax get to the back of the class, step up the 10% tax rise on cider. The Wurzels, the cider-drinking chart-toppers from the 1970s, put themselves back in the spotlight, joining one of the many protests to leave our cider alone. In recent years, we've seen the cider industry in the UK revitalise itself with the help of a few ice cubes, but now people who know about these things say all that work could be undone. Keith Orchard has a cottage industry in the Wye Valley in Gloucestershire. His latest batch of cider will be ready in a few weeks, but he says the tax hike shows that MPs don't understand life outside the metropolis. I've got to a point where I'm actually... I've cut back the amount of trade work I do because it's not on the bottle product. It's not worth it. There's no margin in it. You know, you, it costs you more to deliver it than it does to actually sell it. And you end up doing it for love, basically, rather than economics, which you can't do. And uh, that's where I'm sort of now at this point. I've got to a certain size thinking, is it worth doing? You know, should I actually retreat it back, take it back down to a hobby? Uh, Which takes a lot of pressure off me because it takes up all my spare time, basically. But it just means, you know, my quality ciders won't be available to everybody. And then the government's going to lose, I don't know, five, six thousand, seven thousand pounds worth of duty a year plus, you know, just depending on how far I go. I mean, to me, I just I look at the current government or just people up in London. Uh, the countryside is somewhere they go and visit at the weekend. You know, so I think realistically, if the National Trust owned everything beyond the M25, people in London would be really happy. You know, they can go and look at it and run away, but they've got no idea what goes on out here. So, what did you think when you heard about this tax hike? Um, from my point of view, it, it does question what, how, where do I go with the business? You know, you, you question the effort you need to put into it, I'm pretty certain it will stop a lot of small producers going into the duty area because why bother? You know, all you're doing is competing. What people don't realise is, or a lot of people, or traders, we say, I can, you know, I've got my bottles over there. You take your bottle into them and your cost price is... Oh, I don't know, 20, 30, 40p more than one of the industrial boys, why should they buy that? You know, although the duty's gone up probably 5p a litre, you put that on the, on the shelf, that's actually 10, 12 pence a, a litre, you know, or a pint. It's, just, it's, it's more than they actually say by the time people put the margins on and everything else. And, it, you know, it's just a, another nail in the coffin for the, the local pubs that are struggling anyway. It's all the, again, it's the countryside areas are going to get hit. You know, we're losing enough pubs as it is, which are crucial to the area. And if this issue is among your political priorities, why not join us for our analysis of the Chancellor's debate on tomorrow's Guardian Daily. Finally today, ahead of the predictably soggy Easter bank holiday weekend, a touch of the South American rainforest has come to the UK comes in the form of a giant biodome at London Zoo, which has been constructed as a breeding centre for sloths, monkeys, birds 
and bugs. It's got real rain and living trees and the temperatures maintained at a positively pleasant 30 degrees. Our colleagues from the Science Weekly podcast have been along to investigate. Here you go, lads. David Field, I'm Zoological Director of London Zoo. What we've done with the plant species is, is been working with a uh, sustainable nursery in Costa Rica. Um, and we've been bringing in plant species from this particular nursery. So we've got some amazing species in here, like the, uh, the, the sickle plant down there, which was a forerunner of, of chewing gum. Uh, we've got my favourite is absolutely the, the stilt palm or the walking palm. It's kind of a real-life triffid. It does actually, well, in theory, it walks. It, it, it's amazing. Um, walks at a very, very slow pace. Um, and then comes uh, what makes this different, different to anywhere else. It's the fact that you've got titi monkeys, emperor tamarins, sloth, tamandua, sunbittens, pope cardinals, Montserrat oriole. Just the species list is dynamic. And these species are running amongst you just there because the other, the other animal in this environment is the human. They're sharing this space with, with all of these primates, which makes it so special. Well, over there you've got the red titi monkeys. Um, there's a pair of them, breed and pair. They, they stay very close together. They're, um, Tony Dobbs, and I'm a senior keeper. We've increased all the uh, humidity and the temperature, so it is very, very humid and very warm in here now. Um, that's the mist is firing off now, just to, to keep the humidity up. We aim to keep it around 80% humidity, so that's a, a very, very high humidity. Um, not what we're used to, but very similar to what they would um, experience in the wild. All these animals that we've got here are, are being born in zoos, either born in here or born as part of conservation programs from other zoos across, across Europe. How we manage them? Well, we have to start using um, almost field techniques. So it's very important that the techniques that we can develop here in this biome can then be translated to, to the field um, because we do often need to, um, say, trap the lion tamarins in the field to survey them, to, to check them and things like that. But one of the neat things that we do here is that um, not necessarily training the animals but we target the animals, target train them so they will come down for a reward. So each of the animals in here will come down to take food from the keeper's hands. Uh, so in that way we can make sure that we can always give them their extra vitamins or on the occasion when we need to give them a, uh, uh, a vitamin supplement we can do that or some medication. Could you imagine trying to net an animal in this environment? Almost impossible. Be amazed by the full Science Weekly podcast at guardian.co.uk slash scienceweekly. That's it for today's Guardian Daily, producing today Ben Green. I'm Mike Duran. Thanks for listening.